0: Today's Tribcast is presented by the Texas Oil and Gas Association. Are you an energy professional interested in the latest topics that impact our industry? Register today for Texoga's Energy Summit at www.txoga.org.
1: Texas
2: talking, you What was that that you said? Texas talking, ah. Gonna hoop up your head. Texas talking. Tell me who can you trust when Texas got on. Texas got just talking. Hi, this is Rodney Ellis. After 26 years in the Texas State Senate, I'm bringing my bikes and my Wendy Davis back brace to the Harris County Commissioner's Court. I will certainly miss the Texas State Capitol, but you know, I'll be able to keep up to date by the good folks at Tribcast. Now, here's your host for the day, Emily Ramshaw.
1: Thank you. This is Emily Ramshaw here with the Tribcast for the final week of June. I'm joined by Executive Editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. uh, Reporter Patrick Svitek. Hello. And Reporter Alexa Ura. Hello. You guys were pretty low key. Nobody made any kind yeah, of sorry. jokes oh, it's or puns. a low energy trip cast. Evans
3: not here. We miss Evan right. already. Yeah, right. um,
1: so exactly. Evan is in London somewhere. He's he's brexiting the scene. <laughs> <laughs> um, so all right, tell us just quickly, since we have an intro from him, uh, what's happening with Rodney Ellis? He is uh, he's leaving the Senate,
2: getting the hell out of Dodge. He's because. Uh, uh, El Franco Lee was a longtime Harris County Commissioner. He passed away earlier this year, opening that seat after he was on the ballot. So they had to go to the precinct chairs in the Democratic Party to replace him on the ballot with another Democrat. Rodney Ellis has been working on that and got the votes he needed, I guess, last Saturday, right? It was Saturday, yeah. Um, and so he'll be on the ballot. So that sets up, you know, do- Domino One has fallen. Rodney Ellis is bound for the Harris County Commission unless something weird happens. Um, it's a Democratic seat. You know, he's the candidate. Bada bing, bada boom. Uh, Symphonia Thompson, Garnett Coleman, uh, Boris Miles, and
3: Ron, uh, Ron Green, Ron former Green. city controller,
2: um, are running for or have stated an interest in running for the Senate yeah. or being on the ticket as for the Senate. Coleman, the I think Coleman,
3: I think is just interested, or right. it's unclear. But I, I know that right now, it seems the top two candidates are Thompson and, and Miles.
2: Yeah, uh, Coleman has given mixed signals on this. He said at various times, "I'm interested. Mm-hmm. I don't think I can do it. I'm interested." Uh, you know, he didn't sound all the way in, like you say. Yeah.
1: And so, when will that election be?
3: Sure, that the at uh, a Jul- uh, July 16th meeting of the precinct chairs in Senate District 13, uh, there should be 90. Some of them, uh, they will select who will replace uh, Rodney Ellis as the Democratic candidate for that state Senate. Oh, seat. they
2: get to they get to yeah. Pick. That's how sure. this works. This is the same thing that got wow. the mm. same thing that put Ellis on the ballot the precinct chairs their candidate leaves the ballot and so it's up to the party to replace their party's candidate so they'll put somebody up for the senate seat it's a you know uh, overwhelmingly democratic thing so this is tantamount to being elected but they're just basically putting somebody on the ballot for november mm-hmm. and okay. then there will be another one for <laughs> um, a house seat if it's you know if, it, right. if thompson right. wins or if miles yeah. wins they'll have to do this all over again to put somebody on the Ballot for the House.
1: And so, who's the likely replacement then? How do you uh, read the tea leaves on that? You know,
2: that? Uh, Miles has been working really, really hard on it. Uh, Symphronia Thompson is really powerful and strong in Austin. In fact, there, you know, a lot of people, and you could probably include me in that, wonder why she would leave the House, where she basically the equivalent of five the or boss. ten. The boss. She's yeah. five <laughs> or ten members. She's got, you know, she's got so much juice in the House, and she's going to be the least senior, if she wins this thing, the least senior member of the Texas Senate in the minority. Mm -hmm. You know, you're in the minority in both places, but she actually has some real influence in the House, I don't know why she'd give it up.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, one, one advantage that Boris Miles has is his uh, House district is almost entirely contained within the Senate district. And so when it comes to knowing those precinct chairs and knowing who to call and who to talk to and p- perhaps having relationships over the years, maybe he has an advantage there. He at least has that geographic advantage. I believe that Thompson's district intersects it, right. but just not as right. much as Miles is almost entirely within
2: Yeah, and he's much less of an influence in the House. He's not given up a bunch of power to do this. Yeah. Yeah.
1: All right, well, Alexa, let's start with the giant news that dominated this week, and that is Supreme Court's uh, ruling on House Bill 2, Texas's abortion restrictions from 2013. Um, what specifically does the ruling say about two key provisions in Texas? The
0: ruling from the Supreme Court justices essentially knocks out both of the strictest requirements in HB2 and some of the strictest requirements in the country, really. Uh, But beyond that, it also says that courts have a responsibility to sort of scrutinize lawmakers' intent in passing sort of health-justified abortion restrictions. Essentially, lawmakers can't just say this is about women's health. They actually have to provide specific, sound medical evidence that will hold up in court in passing these sort of things. And
1: so, um, what does any of the, yeah, the, right, exactly. <laughs> we haven't done well with that traditionally. Um, and so, I mean, what does any of this mean in practice? We've seen the number of abortion clinics in the last three years drop from forty basically down to nineteen. Uh, I mean, should we expect to see these clinics opening right and left? You know, what are we hearing? I think that the most immediate
0: effect is that none of those nineteen clinics are likely to close. Um, it's pretty unclear at this point whether any of those that close will be able to reopen at least quickly. Um, a lot of them gave up their facilities. They gave up their staff. They have to reapply for a license with the state. And
1: the state clearly has no incentive to make it easy for them to reapply for a licensure.
0: Right, and right. and it's a process that can take up to a year. So I don't think we'll see too many clinics reopening. We might see we might start seeing some movement there, but you know it was a it was a major major win for abortion providers and the reproductive rights community. But at the end of the day, we're still down to 19 clinics from 40. Mm-hmm.
2: It's an interesting thing. You know the justices were 5-3 on this ruling, but only Clarence Thomas said that the Texas law should remain on the books. The the other two, Roberts and Alito, um, were in the minority on this thing. But they said remand it to the state. They were, you know, they had questions about whether those two uh, provisions ought to be in the law. Um, so if you're putting this back together, if you're a legislator and you're trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, either in Texas or in any of the states that have mimicked Texas, uh, you have to look at this ruling and say, okay, where did they leave us a foothold? And and you know, to your point about this being a a landmark ruling, they didn't leave much of one. Mm
1: -hmm. I mean, I'm curious, you know, in the aftermath of the Supreme Court ruling on same-sex marriage, it seemed sort of like the final word. You know, I mean, that states, uh, well, uh, the, you know, le- Texas legislators will always find ways to put further restrictions in place. But what can legislators do in the aftermath of, of the Supreme Court ruling on HB 2? What are we expecting to see out of the legislative session? You know, where are they going to put their focus? I mean, I think the difference was that the same sex marriage
0: ruling was creating a new constitutional right, whereas the HB 2 ruling was just affirming one. And so I think you will we'll come back and they'll have to figure out ways to now restrict this pr- this procedure in a way that will hold up against this landmark ruling, which essentially made it harder for Republicans to be able to do this sort of thing. So we haven't seen a lot of specifics yet. Um, I anticipate they'll probably be more focused on the procedure itself and less on the providers in the abortion clinics. D-
3: did we hear from any anybody in our state government of notable influence saying that we're going to be pursuing further legislation on this? Or Depends it on what a- you mean by notable right? <laughs> I mean, it was just a random, you know, lawmaker here or there. I mean, no,
0: I mean, I think there's a there's a sort of a group Dan Patrick, of, Dan Patrick. There's a group of Republican in, in the house in the house, particularly that will mm-hmm. sort of take this up. But I think there's also sort of fa- the way there are factions within the Republican Party. There are factions within the anti-abortion groups, and so I think that divide will become a little bit more apparent as moving forward. Sure. Whether some are sort of more willing to pass something that might not stand up to.
3: There was a
2: bunch of stuff in play. There were, you know, several bills in play when HB2 passed in the first place. And, you know, it ended up being sort of this, you know, they took everything and threw it in one bucket. But there are a lot of single-shot bills, and there are a lot of other things that have been, you know, litigated in the legislature session after session after session. And I expect them to be back in force. It's a very conservative legislature. The Republicans have two-thirds, in effect, of both houses. And I, I think they're going to try um, really hard again— to get the results that they were hoping for with HB2. Mm-hmm. Maybe some different path, obviously, but. Yeah,
1: um, I mean, you heard, yeah, you think, heard. I don't think this fight's over. Certainly oh, not. No, no. I mean, you heard legisl- uh, legislator Jonathan Stickland said he'd never been so unhappy or so sad or something in his life, you know, that that we should expect an onslaught of legislation focusing sort of more on the unborn child than on the mother. Um, so, you know, clearly.
2: I think we'll see, a you know, an attempt. I don't know how popular it will be for um, personhood rights for um, fetuses and for you know unborn children, and you know that's an old fight, but I think we'll see a lot of this again.
1: And just a reminder, if you're watching on Facebook, uh, feel free to chime in with questions and we'll try to address them. Um, Alexa, you had a story this morning on the cost of this mm-hmm. battle so far. Um, give us the rundown of the numbers. So according to the Office of the Attorney General, which was defending the state in
0: court, uh, the combined cost of two lawsuits that challenged HB2 uh, the price tag on that was more than a million dollars. I honestly thought it would have been a little bit more than that,
1: but, but you Other know, legislation has, has, you know, or um, legal action has gone beyond that one million mark pretty easily. Right. It's actually but lower I, than I thought. <laughs> but I also think it
0: was a pretty quick battle. I mean, uh, three years since it was passed, but you know, some of these cases the last years and years and years and I think this was one that sort of went through the courts fairly quickly and the Supreme Court was kind of just waiting for it to get there so that they could take it up because there were other abortion lawsuits from other states but the Texas one was definitely the most restrictive and so mm-hmm. they were kind of waiting for that one mm-hmm. it seems.
1: Uh, and a couple legacy related questions. We have one question from Facebook. Is this the final legacy of the Rick Perry years? Uh, flip side of that is you know what does this mean for Wendy Davis's legacy? It se- seemed like maybe her legacy was going to be a failed gubernatorial bid and now the legislation that she filibustered has been found unconstitutional?
2: Well, I I think the thing that brought her to prominence, Mm -hmm. you know, was the filibuster. And, you know, it didn't bring her to enough prominence to win that gubernatorial race. But, you know, you know, she's clearly the marquee figure Mm -hmm. in this particular fight. And I think, you know, a lot of the people who were fighting HB2 credit her with, you know, getting the ball rolling, making this a big issue, gaining a crowd around it that, you know, could Take it to this point, um, you know. I don't know that the, I, you know, I don't know that it changed. This kind of solidified that. Mm-hmm. Alexa had a great story about that.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that the, the twenty fourteen loss in the governor's race now sort of sits between this great moment for her in the filibuster, right. and then now sort of this vindication from the Supreme Court. Uh, I don't think people will forget how. Terrible that campaign was, and and the results of that. But I think it was a it was a good moment, definitely a good moment for her and for sort of the movement that built around the filibuster and you know the young women who came to right. the Capitol that had never been there before. I think that's sort of the the more lasting impact of that filibuster itself, because those were the people that you saw at the Capitol during the last legis- legislative session when Wendy Davis kind of disappeared after her loss.
2: Right now she's tried this. She's starting this new thing, deeds not words. I think is what it's called, mm-hmm. and you know we'll see if there's another act here. Um, But, you know, so far the, the filibuster is kind of her moment. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, and I think in a lot of ways, you know, going to the, the Rick Perry question, right. The, Maybe not so much specific to Rick Perry, but I think it is interesting that you saw this lawsuit and it was almost from the Supreme Court's view, you know, Republicans in Texas went far enough to where the Supreme Court finally pulled back what they were doing and in a way made it harder for some of these restrictions, not just in Texas, but across the country. I mean, we've already seen similar restrictions in Wisconsin go down. Uh, The Alabama Attorney General said they're no longer going to keep up their admitting privileges fight. So I think that the legacy you know within you have these restrictions now down in texas but it's being felt nationwide and Mm -hmm. that's sort of the bigger effect of this all of this and it started with republicans wanting to restrict the procedure here we'll we'll
2: always have voter id you know (laughs) and in a lot of ways you know what abbott's done as governor in his you know year and a half or almost a year and a half as governor is really just an extension of what Perry was doing as governor and Abbott was doing as attorney governor. This is attorney, attorney general. general. But, uh, <laughs> it's what, a new attorney was, governor. Almost Maybe a governor. position. Almost governor. AG stands for almost governor. <laughs> oh, right. um, you know, it's, this is the continuing federalism strain that started in Texas years and years ago. Um, so in some ways, this is a seamless transition. In that way, this is a seamless transition from Perry to Abbott. Yep. We hate some federal government down here.
1: Well, speaking of hating the federal government, uh, the only story that gave the abortion story a run for its money as far as traffic was concerned this week was the, um, could there be a Texit, the, the Brexit no. or Texit? <laughs> no. Um, and I feel like we've written this story a thousand times, but each time we revisit it, the website basically
2: explodes. That's your Republican. Well, you, it explodes with people who are like, yeah, that'd be great. And, and, and not all of them are Texans. <laughs>
1: right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Many of
2: them are like, yeah, go. See ya. Go on. Yeah. Yeah. All
1: right. So walk us through the the legal aspect of this one more time. No, Could you can't Texas do it. Could no. Texas secede? No.
2: no, no. You can't. Why? You just can't. It's, you know, th- <laughs> uh, this has been litigated. It was litigated during Reconstruction. It's over. You can't. There was a case called Texas versus White in 1869 um, that went through the U.S. Supreme Court and it was, you know, sort of a sideways version. It wasn't directly on point, but it was sort of a sideways version of, no, you don't have the right to leave. Texas does have the right but um, by an agreement, as it came into the union, to split into five states if it wants to. Uh, so
1: what, that well, part which, is the most is, bad. Which is, really, <laughs> which is
2: really kind of fascinating. Yeah. You know somebody drew a map several years ago. There was saying, a how state would state Texas named, uh, David Swinford from uh, the Panhandle, who several years ago filed legislation that would have said, you know, split it like this, and everybody kind of got to look and say, ah. I don't know if I want to be in the state of, right. you know, whatever, Andalusia. Does or whatever the Medicaid
0: money get split too?
2: Yeah, well, yeah, well <laughs> you know, it's a really interesting thing. If you play the political exercise, this is like, you know, something for the George W. Bush school or the LBJ school at um, A&M or UT uh, to play with. But you could get five different kinds of politics pretty easily out of five different Texases. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We can't leave the union. We can split into five states or fewer if we want to.
1: So why does this keep coming up? I mean, why, what is is this sort of nationalist streak in Texas where this conversation yeah. continues to bubble up? I was going to say,
3: it seems like far-fetched, but if you look at the way that you know elected leaders in Texas and Republican politicians in Texas respond to questions about this, they never come out and straight up say, no, it can't happen, it's not going to happen. Which is I why Ross it's...
1: Ramsey's never going to get elected. <laughs> what, <laughs> which,
3: which illustrates, yeah. though, that, you know... That's one of the At least some corners of the party, this is a politically potent strain, or at least the the general sentiment behind it. And it's it's, it's interesting, especially in the wake of Brexit, watching people like Greg Abbott, watching—I I don't know who else has been asked about it. You know, I'm sure Rick Perry has asked about it every now and then. Watching them navigate this question, um, you know, they always kind of laugh, but then they kind of dance around. You know, whether it's a yes or no question. And I think it illustrates that, yeah, there is certainly that strain in, in the party, however minor it may be, but it's still kind of there's still some potency to it.
2: Mm-hmm. And it's back to that thing we were talking about a minute ago. You know, Texas has had its middle finger pointed toward Washington for a long time, and whenever you say, "Would you like to leave?" it's like. Part of me would. <laughs> <laughs> Politically appetizing. Let's yeah. talk about it a yeah. more. Yeah.
1: Text it would also make for a great hashtag. So
0: we've yeah. got
2: that it's so a great It has hashtag. been a pretty active hashtag yeah. last few days.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, well, speaking of public sentiment. Do we get to
2: take Scotland along. That's the question.
1: <laughs> right, exactly. I guess Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> There uh, is new polling this week uh, showing basically the span, the margin between Trump and Clinton in Texas. Patrick, Phillison on what we know from our friends at the UT sure. poll.
3: Yeah, there's University of Texas, Texas Politics Project poll that came out that showed uh, Donald Trump was leading uh, Hillary Clinton by only eight points in Texas. Uh, just for some context, uh, the last two Republican presidential nominees won Texas, I believe, easily by double digits. Double digits
1: for sure. Mitt right? Romney
3: yeah. last time by 16 points and before that John McCain by 12 points. Obviously, it's, it's one poll. It's, it's very early in the process. Um, I think what the the UT pollsters, one of their takeaways was that disunity on both sides of the aisle was driving this. Um, you know, you have some Bernie Sanders supporters in Texas who are not yet ready to embrace Hillary Clinton. And then you have um, what you've seen nationally with Donald Trump, which is that the Republican Party is not entirely coalescing around their, their presumptive presidential nominee. That seemed to be kind of the, one of the major explanations for what was driving this. this he seems threat. to be
2: drawing a lot of money making consultants from Texas. Sure, yeah. <laughs>
3: so, so, so was the was the
1: theory then that people weren't ready to sort of cast their vote or was it that they're you're seeing people who are Republicans who are supporting Hillary I, I mean what was their takeaway?
3: Sure. I mean, I think that if you look at the you know voting for someone else or I don't know numbers, they were unusually
2: high, I'd say. I think someone else was 19 percent. but not unusual for this time of year. Sure. I mean, everybody's sort of, you know, like you say, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the Democrats are still waiting for all the Democrats to come home. The yeah. Republicans are waiting to see if the Republicans will come home. So undecided it's going to yeah. be, you know, I was a Cruz guy or I was a Bernie guy. You mm-hmm. know, those people are kind of in the undecided column right yeah.
1: now. What about if there ends up being a, uh, is there a libertarian streak here? I mean,
3: Sure. Well, I think once they put uh, Gary Johnson into the mix, uh, the margin went down just one point to seven points. So Trump was leading Clinton by seven points with Gary Johnson in the mix. And it looks like that Johnson was drawing his support um, not from, and you correct me if I'm wrong here, not from Clinton or Trump, but from the I don't know category, right. from the someone else category. He had, so, the,
2: he had 7%, yeah. though, which is a lot for a candidate like that. And
3: I believe 5 or 4% of his 7% came from not from Clinton or there Trump, was, but from There the, was another thing categories.
2: in the poll that I thought was really, really interesting was that if you ask, when they asked um, the Trump supporters, you're going to vote for Trump, why are you voting for Trump? Are you voting because you think Trump ought to be in the White House or because you don't like Hillary Clinton? And 45% said Trump in the White House, 55% said we're voting against Hillary mm-hmm. Clinton. When you mm-hmm. flip that and ask the Clinton voters, 57% of her supporters wanted her in the White House, 43% were voting against Trump. Mm-hmm. So the um, the hold your nose and vote for vote against the other guy was stronger on the republican side
0: right how do you account for all the people who might you know be republicans and never support hillary clinton but don't want to cast a vote for donald trump i mean they
2: we have, have all of these you polls. You sound sort of- like Gary Johnson's campaign <laughs> <man>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is what the, this is what the libertarians are hoping for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, they've got a former uh, two-time New Mexico governor, and I think Weld was twice governor of, of Massachusetts. Anyway, he was governor of Massachusetts. Both of them served as Republicans. That's not a bad parking place. It's not a terrible parking place for a moderate Republican who won't vote for Clinton and can't vote for Trump.
1: I mean, do you expect a margin like that to widen? Obviously, if I'm Hillary Clinton and I'm looking at that margin, I'm saying, you know, look how close that margin is. We're not even there yet. And, you know, I told you guys Texas might be in play. Could Texas possibly be in play even even with numbers like that?
3: I think as as we were discussing the other day, I mean, if you're Hillary Clinton and you have comfortable leads in traditional battleground states. A few months from now, you're essentially coasting other battleground states, and, you know, the margin in Texas continues to look, even in the high single digits, I don't know how you're not at least feel the urge or feel the temptation to turn some formal attention to Texas. I don't know if that means, I don't think that means turning Texas blue, but in terms of allocation of resources, that would probably be tempting if that
2: continues. Mm -hmm. You'll see smaller blocks fall first. You know, you'll see this congressional district or that one go more strongly Democratic than it has in the past. Uh, this is kind of the subject of the day, or the next six months in um, CD23, uh, where yeah. mm-hmm. Will Hurd is defending a seat against uh, challenge from the guy he took it from, Pete right. Gallego. You know, that's, this is the kind of district where the national politics could really play. And there's a couple of other congressional districts that have never been close that you might get unexpectedly close results because the Democrats are doing particularly well, if that's in fact what happens. I mean, we don't even know what the subject of this election is yet. Until you get to September or October, you won't really know for sure what people are voting about, what the question in their minds is when they go to Mm -hmm. the polls, and whether that question answers more favorably for the Republican or the Democrat.
0: Well, and I think part of this Texas being in play, there's all this talk about Hispanic voters and whether Trump's alienated them enough, and I just don't know if, you know, the Hispanic voters just don't turn out every election. It's sort of the same thing, and I just, you know, I don't know that he's alienated them pretty badly. But I just don't know that it'll actually be mess. enough to flip Texas. Right? <laughs>
3: right. How, how much do you have to alienate? How I much, mean,
1: them? no, I <laughs> agree. <but laughs> how many more? How many answer. more
2: taco bowls <laughs> do you have to eat? Uh,
1: another question from Facebook. Your
2: bumper sticker. <laughs> yeah. How many more? Taco
1: and bowls? first to know, Walker asks, will the DNC spend money in Texas? Probably yes, given that CD twenty three race, well, right? Well, they'll, they'll spend. Yeah.
2: Both parties are going to spend like crazy in twenty three. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's a battlefield. That's a national battlefield district. It's a really important district for both. The Republicans want to hold on to a seat that, you know, if for no other reason than you know, Will Hurt is a is a black Republican, and that's a rare beast in. Congress, and they want to hang on to that. He's a you know, he's a, uh, he's young, in a predominantly star. Latino district. Right, right. Latino district. You know, I mean, there's, there's a million reasons for them to hold on to that and, and for them to fight for that. Um, same thing with the Democrats. So that that's clearly a battleground. If you see the DNC or the Clinton campaign in any other districts or the Trump campaign in any other districts in Texas, it means that something's so locked away in all of the battleground states that they have money to fling down here where it hmm probably won't work
1: right speaking of trump in texas um, patrick what are we seeing as far as are there prominent texans who've jumped to his campaign to actually you know work on his campaign
3: sure as as trump you know kind of Scrambles in some ways to professionalize his campaign. He's certainly, <laughs> uh, you know, t- turning to people in Texas. Uh, you know, for a while now, he's worked with a technology firm based out of San Antonio, I believe, before his presidential campaign. His Trump Properties was working with this firm, and the head of that firm, his his name is escaping me right now, but the head of that firm was recently named the digital director mm-hmm. of his campaign. Uh, reportedly, when, when Trump was in Texas a few weeks ago or two weeks ago, uh, you know, top RNC officials had a big meeting with that firm to try to start uh, kind of building out digital infrastructure for the campaign um, also on that topic we just learned uh, last night that Vincent Harris uh, of Harris media here in Austin kind of a uh, you know GOP digital media whiz kid uh, sort had um, been
1: with Rand Paul had
3: been with Rand Paul and with uh, right. Ted Cruz before that now he's been hired by the campaign and the campaign is going to be working not just with him but also the you know more broadly with the Harris media uh, firm um, and so we're seeing some of those names uh, Miller too. crop up and then Jason Miller right. um, He's not from Texas, but he was uh, a senior aide to Ted Cruz during his presidential campaign. Jason Miller was announced as a senior communications advisor for the Trump campaign, I believe, on Monday. Mm -hmm. And he served a similar role for the the Cruz campaign. And that, I think, was probably the more surprising or more significant hire, just because ever since Cruz's campaign ended, I think there has been... um, maybe I'm overstating it, but some pride among alumni of the campaign that they haven't had something like that happen where a senior staffer has gone and worked for Trump or whatever, and this is really the first instance of that happening, and so I can see how that would be disappointing to other people who've been uh, working on the Cruz campaign.
1: I mean, are these people jumping to Trump's campaign because they have an ideological alliance, or are they jumping because it's where the dollar signs are?
3: I think money is probably a a large part of their decision-making, but I think also there's, you know, among some of these consultants, Again, if you get beyond money, right. <laughs> we'll put the the money thing aside. Thing you know? to get <laughs> <fine>. <laughs> yeah. Imagine a political <laughs> consultant being being exactly. driven right. by money. You know, I right. think oh, among God. them, there's still some hope that you know they could have a you know a pivotal role in the campaign in terms of taking it into this next phase, which you know we've been promised the next phase for so long. I think everybody thinks they could be the one who right. you know turns the page for the campaign. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I mean, you know, in all fairness, ever since you know they've announced some of these hires this week, we have seen a little bit more of a professional, more con- con- conventional campaign in terms. Of communications, um, so it's not not to say that there haven't there haven't been kind of dividends being mm.
2: paid by that already. We kind of hit that earlier. I mean, you know, if the if the story of the year is going to be, if it happens, if the Republicans don't go home, that's the story of the year. If the Democrats don't go home, that's a big story. I mean, you know, usually you get to this part of a campaign and all the primaries are over, and everybody who lost is sore about it, and it takes a while to kind of swallow your pride and say, you know, well, I am still flying under the banner I'm flying under and I'm going to eventually, you know, the Democrats eventually vote for the Democrat, the Republicans for the Republican. If Trump doesn't do this, that's going to be the story of the year. I mean, it's a normal thing for the Republicans to kind of get over it and thaw out and, you know, sleep it off and come back in and say, okay, well, I want to beat her.
1: Right. Well, uh, speaking of um, a couple things that Trump likes and dis- dislikes, uh, we the poll also had some headlines on Muslims, which fall in the mm-hmm. dislike category, and the border wall, which falls in the super like sure. category. What's the consensus among Texas voters on those two topics?
3: Yeah, I believe that poll found, you know, slight majorities of Texas voters support, number one, building a border wall, banning non-citizen Muslims from entering the country. And then the other one uh, was another plank of um, the Trump platform. It's escaping me right now. But I mean, basically, we saw a majority of Texas voters um, supporting, uh, you know three or four of these key proposals from Trump mm-hmm. that have you could brand as, as nativist or restrictionist when it comes to immigration mm-hmm. right
1: I mean and the headlines on that obviously looked pretty inflammatory but the it's it was a, a simple majority right I mean these weren't like land this, that was landslides. among Texas voters right. if you
3: looked at you know if you looked at among Texas Republican voters um, some of these the support for some of these proposals was up in the 70s mm-hmm. uh, the mm-hmm. third the third proposal was immediately deporting people in the country illegally well yeah, right.
0: it sort of goes back to that you know will Texas flip does it become a battleground and then you you see a poll like this right. where a slight majority of voters are completely in line with you know some pretty extreme positions within the Republican Party and Republicans tend to vote you know at higher rates than some of the people who could help the Democrats so it's it, that whole battleground and flipping Texas just kind of goes out the window the, with the ingredients
2: there. tell you what's in the can you know this is the kind of thing where you say are you for Trump or not and people say I don't know because they're thinking about his personality but if you say You know, without saying these are three of Trump's major issues, you say, what do you think about this and this and this? And they go, some version of, oh, hell yes. You know, when you look at Republicans, like you say, Mm -hmm. you know, then you look at that and you got to conclude if that person votes and they believe this and this and this, they're going to vote for Trump. Mm -hmm. Clinton's in the opposite position. So I think you're right. I think this is one of the best indicators. And you see this, you know, some version every time you have an election. This is one of the best indicators that those people will eventually... Those voters will eventually end up with the Republican. Yeah, I
3: think that was the big takeaway for me from the poll was at least you know as you said they'll eventually end up, perhaps with the candidate. But the dissonance between you know Trump not doing as well as some people may expect him to be doing in a red state versus the fact that all these voters seem to you know agree and especially Republicans overwhelmingly agree with some of these big proposals that he's talked about.
2: Some of it relies on what Alexa was saying: the um, how mad are the Latinos? Are they Mm -hmm. mad enough to get off the couch? Because they're on the other side of these issues. And if they turn out in larger than normal numbers, then Clinton does relatively better, and that margin shrinks.
1: Well, I just want to touch on one more headline, and uh, I saw you tweeting about this last night, Patrick, but it looks like uh, Travis County GOP Chairman Robert Morrow has been officially sworn in. I think I saw a picture of him being sworn in wearing a jester cap.
3: Yeah, he wears this jester uh, hat and has three prongs on it, I believe, and they all, three or four prongs on it, and he actually calls it a (laughs) truth-telling hat because every prong represents a different theory. Uh, a different
1: conspiracy a, a theory.
3: Some kind of conspiracy theory. Could have just um, gone with the yeah. Yeah. They, typical tie all, corner I, I was going to say,
1: do they all have? Right. The
0: Does he yeah. label it has, them? There's a, a bell it. on it. Yeah. Right.
3: Uh, See, so yeah, it was his first meeting as, as chairman last night, and as we've previously reported, you know, the, the the county executive committee has moved to kind of take away some powers from him, but he still shows up and, and you know holds the meeting in some ways. So um, is he
1: like, you know, over the overseer of the meeting? Is he? Sure. Providing? <laughs> yeah. Well, he
3: was allowed to speak a little bit beforehand before being sworn in. And it was actually not very – it wasn't more unusual than normal for him. Um, You know, he started off his remarks by saying, I'm for the continued functioning of the party. And then he launched into about 10, 15 minutes of, uh, you know, espousing a lot of the conspiracy theories we've heard before from him. He brought some props along. He had a few books that, you know, he says back up some of his uh, conspiracy theories um, but otherwise, it was kind of normal. Um, you know, he would beforehand he was uh, before he spoke, he went around, shook hands, introduced himself to all the members, was cracking some some Bernie Sanders jokes, was talking about uh, you should come to the you know he was you know come to the young Republicans meeting at this date and time. He was kind of functioning like a normal uh, you know, county chairman so, for a little
2: wait a while. to <laughs> straight What was the for audience doing? Here? What was the, the mood so, of the room? You
3: know, once it became clear that in his remarks that he was going to be spending all of them talking about the conspiracy theories. The room kind of tuned out a little mm. bit. People kind of sat back, put their feet up, went, went on their phones. Um, I, you know, at a Got few points, people tried to yeah. stop him, and you know, they said, you know, oh, you know, like look at their watches. You know, said he, he should wrap it up. And some of the some of the party officers or some of the you know people in charge said, oh, just you know, let him you know let him get, effectively let him get it out of his system. Unless and he so, does it every
2: meeting, <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. basically well, us well, when Evan so, is talking.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, um, before we wrap up, I just want to uh, mention briefly that we have a crowdfund campaign going on. For for unholstered which is a project that we're working on around police shootings uh, you can support that project at, on uh, beacon readers website beaconreader.com. but Alexa could you just give us the very cliff notes version of why we're pursuing this project
0: yeah I mean I think there's been a lot of increased attention on police shootings across the state across the country and um, interactions between police and their communities and there's not a whole lot of information about what that looks like here in Texas and so we're hoping to kind of change that and, and look at police shootings in at least 35 of the biggest cities obviously texas is a massive state Um, and and see sort of what's the state of police shootings here Wonderful. So you can support
1: that project at uh, beaconreader.com. All right, folks, uh, if you are tuning in via Facebook, you can find the Tribcast as a podcast on iTunes and on Stitcher. And if you have questions or comments, you can email them to tribcast at Tribune.org. Thanks to Shiny Ribs for our music. And on behalf of Ross, Alexa, Patrick, our producers, Todd and Rodney, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Texas Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking.
0: See you cry. we're going with alexa rocha anytime you need to refer to me or Alana, we
1: called you alexa rocha
0: He <laughs> did i could i was i was writing a <laughs> note was. you saw
1: the note